0: This is Space Watch Daily, the place to get insights into this second great space race. I'm David Ariosto. So what you're hearing is from 1961, and that crackle in the communications is between two men who were just about to make history. The first was Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, who was about to become the first man in space. The other man was Sergei Korolev, a man who is widely considered the father of the Soviet Union's success in space, this is the guy who brought you Sputnik and Vostok and Soyuz, who was probably doing anything but sitting inside that top secret Soviet launch facility in the middle of the Kazakh desert. I'm, I'm talking about the, the Bakunur Cosmodrone. Anyway, he was about to become the first man to put a cosmonaut up there, basically shooting Gagarin into orbit at roughly around 17,500 miles an hour. Basically, this is a bullet out of a gun with a human on top of it, which especially after Sputnik, this really drove home how much of a space race Washington and Moscow were now engaged in and how much it seemed that Washington was falling behind. In fact, President Kennedy had to address it the very next day. I do not regard the first man in space as a sign of the weakening of the, uh, of the uh, free world. But I do regard the total mobilization of men and uh, things for the service of the communist bloc over the last years as a source of great danger to us. The reason that I mention this now, despite everything we've heard and know about Roscosmos, which is a far cry from those heady Soviet days in space, it's essentially Russia's main space agency today, and it has just, I mean, it has just been beset by problems of corruption and lack of funding and infrastructure problems. Uh, there, there's so many problems with Gros Cosmos. It's a uh, you know change in leadership recently. Um, not to mention the loss of some of Russia's best and brightest, especially in the wake of the Ukraine war, this so-called brain drain um, that has beset so many different Russian sectors in, in just the last uh, two years, is that Russia is now about to land or may land its first lunar lander in the post-Soviet era, which is just wild. I'm sure it plays into Putin's nostalgia for the glories of the old Soviet Union, which, by by virtue of his actions recently, make it seem like he's trying to reconstitute, however unsuccessfully. And no question it plays into the sense of a Cold War competition with the U.S. Um, And, you know, there's a lot to look back on. Um, in terms of that those Soviet milestones I mean there was the first satellite first lunar probe first man in space it was even the first landing on another planet I'm talking about Venus you know these days there is a New Zealand aerospace company called rocket lab that has announced some plans for Venus but it was the Soviets who first got there I believe they've been seven or eight times that the, the never manned, obviously, and, and the crafts didn't do so well, but they actually landed on Venus. I mean, even the first basic space station was put together by linking two Soyuz crafts. So, you know, there's a lot to look back on, but those days, in many ways, are kind of part of the nostalgia, especially when you speak to some of former uh, Soviet uh, aerospace engineers. And the field now is just so much more crowded. I mean, not, you put the nations aside, you just look at all the private sector players, SpaceX, Blue Origin, uh, Virgin Galactic. I mean, in in, in this commercial space, it is, it is much different than that first space race. But it's also different in the, in the number of countries that are also involved. I mean, keep in mind, India also has an unmanned mission orbiting the moon right now. So... You know, given that, and given the problems that Roscosmos has faced in recent years, this is pretty extraordinary for an agency that's been crippled by sanctions and and has been dealing with some pretty big systemic problems uh, up there, some technical problems. I'm, of course, referring to the Soyuz spacecraft, which recently uh, sprang a coolant leak. Uh, it also happened on one of the cargo craft crafts up there. Um, keep in mind, Roscosmos only sends about two Soyuz up each year, so. That, those kind of problems are pretty significant. Um, you know, th- There was some talk that it might have been a result of a meteoroid strike or s- other space debris. That, that's actually something we talked about quite a bit during my interview with Sierra Space President Janet Cavande. But there was also this hole in Soyuz in 2018 that had to be patched and a booster failure. So you know, a lot of this points to a space program that's in disrepair and remember there's just a lot less money coming in now um, the Russian space program used to rely on American payments You know, after the US scrapped its shuttle program in the wake of that Columbia disaster the only way up the only way up to the, the ISS the International Space Station was through Moscow and that ended a couple years ago when NASA started using SpaceX and its uh, and its Dragon spacecraft so with Less funding and sanctions, Roscosmos just wasn't seen as as big of a player as as uh, as the old uh, as, as its as its Soviet uh, predecessor. But nonetheless, they're heading up there, and they're heading, and this is really the interesting part: they're heading to the lunar south pole, and that seems to be where everyone wants to be headed. Um, I'm talking about China. Um, India, the U.S. obviously, um, and now Russia. So it kind of begs the obvious question, which I wanted to address in this podcast: why, why go there? Why go to the lunar south pole? There's there's a couple factors. Um, there's good reason to believe there's rare earth mineral and superconductor metal up there, as well as methane and carbon dioxide. Um, all this you know potentially can be harvested. There's also an isotope that. Um, just doesn't show up that much on Earth. It's called helium-3, and it's considered pretty effective in powering nuclear fusion plants. Fusion, not fission, which, I mean, they have been already making some really important advances with fusion here on Earth. In fact, just this month, U.S. scientists said they repeated what's called a net energy gain in, in fusion reaction, which which basically means they're, they're getting more energy than they're, they're putting out, and that has all kinds of potential for an enormous amount of energy, which is thought to be much cleaner and much safer than fission. But here's one of the big reasons to go to the South Pole, the lunar South Pole, is that there's, there's water there, up there, down there, depending on your, your vantage point. But it's, it's in the form of water ice, and it's just beneath the regolith, And that's important for a few reasons. If you eventually want to put human colonies up there on the moon, water is usually important for any kind of colony. But in this case, you can also use water for rocket fuel. Uh, Let me explain. So by using electrolysis, essentially, you can cleave the hydrogen and oxygen molecules and then store them as liquids. And if you store the hydrogen as as liquids using like the oxygen as potentially an oxidizer, well all of a sudden you have this extremely powerful, extremely light rocket propellant. And if you're building space colonies and transport transport stations, and you're doing 3D printing up there, it's better to have some homegrown rocket fuel to make this whole thing more sustainable. It's the idea, it really falls into this idea, which which I'm going to be touching on a lot, is the, the beginnings of a space-for-space space economy. You know, in the past, we, we've had a big focus on lower Earth orbit and, uh, you know, satellite and telecoms and, and how, you know, space can help uh, Earth um, both in terms of communications but also in terms of what we talked about earlier in terms of potentially even growing human tissue. But there's, there's another side to this. It's production in space-for-space space and that is the beginnings of a truly uh, well, well the beginnings potentially of, of, of a multi-planetary civilization if you're talking long term but all of this kind of needs the basic building blocks and the infrastructure and and once you don't have to worry as much about building these massive rockets on earth to hit sort of that exit velocity because the, most of the things that, that that are launched off this planet are predominantly rocket but if you're building things on the moon you don't really have to deal with that because you have microgravity so a lot of the craft can actually be oriented towards traversing traversing the solar system or you know orienting with with other cargo and capacities that we just you can't you can't do on earth so that effectively is is that is the bedrock the beginnings of this sort of opening of this whole new world quite quite literally or, or maybe whole new worlds plural so thanks So much for listening to my spiel today. No interview this time, but I I just couldn't let this news about a Russian lunar lander go without my two cents. That being said, uh, if you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe. and, And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much.